podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Yeah, buddy. Happy Thursday morning. Welcome back to the pod. Boss man, on the other line. How's it going? It's going good, man. I'm looking forward to you and your fam coming over here to uh, Barcelona, Spain. Dude, I cannot wait. I've been looking at pictures of Barcelona. I've been reading brochures. <laughs> I'm ready to go. It's going to be good. There's going to be a lot of good things for this podcast planned for that glorious month we're going to be spending together. Today's episode was inspired by an email that we received from one of the listeners. His name is Tom Hannon, and he wrote to me after he heard me on the Entrepreneurs on Fire podcast with JLD. A fitting show for me to go on, right? You're on fire, bro. I was feeling on fire, decided to swing by JLD's podcast, and was promoting the Before the Exit book. Tom wrote me a really cool email in response to some of the ideas in the book Before the Exit. So here's what he said. He said, the only area you didn't really cover is when people have to sell. I've sold businesses because of partners, divorce, a major health issue, and industry collapse. And although I think most of the books on selling a business are somewhat accurate, they never really capture this fact, that it isn't always a choice. Interesting, Dan. You know, I think back to whether or not we had a choice when we sold our business, and I think like certainly. We had a choice. We sat down together and we decided, let's do this. But there were certain things at the time where it felt like we were pressured, maybe. Yeah. And again, these are sometimes things that entrepreneurs don't always want to think about. But these are some of the risks that face the enterprises that we're all in. And Tom had a lot of insights about selling businesses, generally speaking. It turns out that he sold 12 companies. So we thought it would be interesting to get more of his perspective on this process, which we felt was unique. So after he made one of his exits, he eventually became a business broker for a while too. So we'll get into what he thinks about all that today as well. So Dan, I talked with Tom and really interesting business models that he was in. He was in the magazine publication and distribution industry. He started his first one over 20 years ago. After he sold that in 2005, he actually went on to create and sell another version of practically the same business that he owned. And he did this several times. And in our conversation, Dan, we touch on the lessons that he learned, things that he feels like he might have done differently. But I start off the interview talking about what resonated with him when he heard you talking about your exit. kept hearing that story that Dan was talking about when he was riding on the bike and he was talking to somebody else who sold their business and in the feelings that you have after you're selling your business I could I could just resonate with all those feelings because I've been through it so many times myself I almost felt like I knew you even though I hadn't never met you what was the first thing that you related to when Dan was talking about selling the business the process you get caught up in the deal And then you don't realize that even though you made a deal, 
it was a good deal and you made some money, you didn't really make enough to move that needle enough to become a player, to become somebody who could just retire. You actually still had to go to work. And a lot of times when people exit in a business, I think they're thinking about they're going to end up under a palm tree somewhere drinking pina coladas, and they're not going to realize that they're not going to get, unless they have some great business, you know, like lead pages or something, you know, unless they have something like that, they're not going to end up financially independent. And life afterwards is much different than you think it's going to be. Tell us a little bit about that first business that you sold. I started a delivery and publishing business. And then about six or seven months in, I actually acquired my biggest competitor. And then I just kept acquiring other pieces. And then what ended up happening was I didn't really have a a good partnership agreement. And my partner and I could no longer get along. So we ended up selling the company to our biggest customer. So when you say uh, publishing business, the way I understand it is your business was distributing and eventually making the publications that are in like supermarkets or gas station. They're free publications that are generally by the door. You pick them up on your way out. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, it's the free publications and you don't see as much of them as you used to, but for the auto magazines, real estate magazines, the apartment magazines, they were really big free publications back, you know, 15 years ago. Tell me a little bit about how your partnership started to break down. It was the communication we really started to have real different visions. My vision was I'm very much into business development and I really wanted to grow the company and he wanted to maximize the profit inside of what we have and he didn't want to get any bigger. And we just could not agree on that aspect. So then what we didn't do, which I would recommend anyone who's going to have a partnership agreement is make sure you have a good partnership agreement. We just didn't have a buyout. And because of that, we couldn't come to terms on a way to buy each other out. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty of this business breakdown, I just wanted to cut in here and say, Tom actually had an earlier practice split because his first venture with the business partner in question originally involved two other people as well. And together, they started publishing dating magazines, which made money out of the highly lucrative 1-900 lines that were around in the mid-1990s. The idea was to have as many, just like any dating site, it was to have as many females on as possible so that the males would call and that they would use the 900 numbers. And it was a very profitable business. You had a publication, they would highlight one of these girls, and then you would call in. And then the objective of the call service is to get these people to stay online or on the phone rather as long as they can to rack up the charges. Is that pretty much the business model? That was the model. It did okay, but it's hard. You and Dan have a great thing going that you've been able to have a partnership as long as you have. And that's just, it was really difficult for us to all get along and have the same vision for everything. What did you think everybody in the organization was going to be doing? Originally, we were going to have, we had one person who was kind of the head of the company. And then we had a salesperson and a half salesperson, half distribution person, and then one distribution person. So that was kind of the thought process of, how it was all going to play. And I was like the half and half. I was the half salesperson, half distribution person. So that was the idea. It was just unfortunate because we didn't really get to work together before we were already in business together. So you, you had your first breakup, two of the partners left, and then you and one other person was standing. Did you have to buy these people out? 
No, there was no buyout because they ended up leaving amicably. It was fairly friendly terms. It was just not going to work out. So you see these two people leave and you're left with this one partner. Did it occur to you to maybe create an operating agreement based on the idea that like, hey, these people left the business. We didn't have anything in writing. You know, wipe the sweat from your forehead. No one tried to steal the business or any money or anything like that. What was your thought process there in terms of your operating agreement with the last standing partner? We did incorporate. It was not in a, a real operating agreement. There was no, we're going to have a valuation to say the company's worth whatever, half a million dollars, and to buy me out, it's a quarter of a million, and you can do us in d- these different formats. We didn't think that far in advance. I was fairly young at the time. I was probably 22 or 23 years old. Those things hadn't really occurred to me that we really needed to have that. That was a mistake for sure. And at what point did you realize that you guys couldn't work together? I would say that was about three and a half years in. We could no longer agree on anything. At the time, now, if you think back, and we're talking 20 years ago here, the free magazine business was taking off like wildfire. There was so much opportunity for growth, and I wanted to grow the company. And he did not. He just wanted to keep the company as a small company and try to maximize the profit inside of it. And I just, I wanted to get bigger. What did you see the potential? Oh, I saw the potential probably anywhere from five to $10 million size company with 100 employees distributing on the East, a large part of the East Coast. I just, I didn't see a limit to where we could go. Was it fair to say that this was the most money that you guys had seen at this point in your lives? For me, it was. I'm not sure about my partner. He was probably eight or nine years older than me. At this time, we were making a decent living. We were buying companies that were in trouble. We had discovered the power of an earnout, and it was working out really well for us. And we probably had 20, 25 people working for us at the time. We were making a good living. And you say that you were starting to acquire other companies. We would buy other publications that were in trouble or they couldn't get to where they wanted to go. In the free magazine world, you really needed 40 pages. And if you don't have 40 pages of advertising, you're not super profitable. So there were people that would get 28 pages of ads and they weren't working at full time or they had other things going on. So we would acquire these publications through earnouts. And then what was great about it was we could, because we had this great distribution network, we could give way more distribution to the magazines. How did you figure out when you were so young and probably lacked experience how to create these earnouts? I started calling my competitors as a more of a friendly thing because I wanted to learn the business. So I started networking with them and some of the conversations were uncomfortable, but some of them were okay. And I found somebody who actually we started a relationship with and then he hit me with, oh, by the way, I'm moving in three months. And I said, really? Well, what are you going to do with your company? And he said, I'm just going to close. And I offered to buy his company based on a percentage over the course of two years. And he accepted the deal. And I didn't even know that's what an earnout was. So, you know, I started approaching people and, you know, I'd say in total, it was be somewhere around five or six acquisitions occurred uh, between then and 97. So it was like a three and a half year period. So you guys are basically having explosive growth. Is your business partner coming to you and saying like, look, Tom, here's the thing. 
I don't really want to keep acquiring these companies. I'm very happy to make X amount of dollars a year. What did that conversation look like when it eventually started to blow up? He wanted to work his 40-hour week. He wanted to maximize the profit, and he didn't want to acquire any more companies. He didn't want to manage any more people. And I wanted to keep growing. He was thinking much smaller than I was. And I'm not saying it was better or worse. He just did not think that in those terms of what could be. And maybe we could have brought management in and brought other people in, but it was hard for us to agree what was right and what was left when the relationship ended. It's interesting because I'm trying to imagine an operating agreement, you know, before this thing really starts to get rolling. And basically the operating agreement would say something like, from his perspective, like, I only want to work 40 hours a week. I only want to make, you know, X amount of money personally. But that's probably not really what he was feeling, right? What he was feeling was like, oh, I feel overworked. I feel like I don't know how to manage people. Are these some of the things that were really happening within the organization? Because I can't imagine just turning away money. He just was not that type of guy. He wanted to have a very simple business. He did not want to grow the business. And I didn't know that about him initially because initially things were going good. It was a hard business though. We were selling ads. We were doing distribution. We had trucks coming in all the time with pallets of magazines. It was a very busy, physically intensive business. Did it occur to you to try and buy him out or make him an employee of the operation? It did, but we couldn't we couldn't reach an agreement. And so you guys found yourself at an impasse. And so what did you do at that point? Well, I found a buyer. We were working with a company called United Advertising Publications. They were our biggest customer and they were publishing magazines like Harmon Holmes, Front Magazine, and they were buying anything they could. So I approached my contact there and I asked them if they'd be interested in acquiring our magazines and distribution business. And we had a deal very quickly. And the only stipulation of the deal was they wanted me to come and work for them. They wanted me to come and run their Boston office and be in charge of some, you know, acquiring other magazines and other distribution programs. We had a lawyer got involved and then we just, we worked on the terms. It was kind of like getting divorced. It was actually just like getting divorced. I gave him more of the cash and I got an employment agreement. And so I take it you went to go work at this company for how many years? Two years. And they were a bigger company than you were. So I'm guessing that you got some kind of education there. Unbelievable. Priceless education. I, they were an international company. They had hundreds of magazines. And they taught me how to scale. Their concept was they would go into an av- a company like a Caldwell Banker. And they would have a Caldwell Banker real estate publish their own magazine with all their own listings in it. And that was a very lucrative business. So if I'm understanding this correctly, uh, Caldwell Banker is a real estate company. They would take out single ads in publications. So you'd flip to page 19 and they'd have a full page ad. What you're saying is this company got Caldwell Banker to create their own magazine full of their own listings. So they were no longer having to pay to be in other people's magazines. Correct. So you're working this company and I assume you had some kind of non-compete. I did. I had a two-year non-compete to not open another advertising business. How many days into your education are you just counting down the days until you can start another company? To be honest with you, I wasn't. I was really enjoying 
working for them because if you've worked for a European company, you the difference between European companies and American companies are night and day. You could take 40 days a year off. And as long as you were performing, they were very generous with their pay. They were generous with their benefits. I was making great money. I was business developing without having to deal with operations. It was great. And then one day, they sold their company. And then my non-compete just happened to run out in two days later. So I went back on my own. Don't let the lack of a big budget or technology skills get in the way of you having not only a beautiful website, but a powerful one that can get your product in the hands of your customers. That's where today's sponsor, Weebly.com, comes in. Weebly is the easiest way to create an incredible looking website, and you don't have to have technology skills. But more importantly, Weebly comes with a whole bunch of tools that help you sell your products, process payments, manage your inventory, and create marketing campaigns that grow your brand. And because Weebly's mission is to turn people's great ideas into successful businesses, they've built an incredible support team. So if you have a question, just pick up the phone to talk to a customer success expert. There's no scripts, there's no robots, just a friendly human who can help you grow your business. That's right. Weebly.com is the quickest way to get your idea on the internet and to simplify your business's web presence. So if you've got a product idea and want to share it with the world, check out Weebly. You can have a beautiful, powerful online store running in a matter of hours. And because you listen to this podcast, you can visit weebly.com slash TMBA and get 15% off of your first purchase. So don't just build a beautiful website and don't spend a bunch of money on it. Build a successful online business and Weebly can help. Paint me a picture of what's going on in your life at this time. You had an exit in your 20s. You were working for this company for two years. My guess is that you had a decent amount of money. What did your life look like? I had a child at a pretty young age. My daughter at the time, I, I would say 2000, so she was about 14 or 15 years old. I mean, we were doing okay as a family. I was always entrepreneurial. So as soon as they made that sale, I was like, oh, I'm going to go back into business for myself. And that did not go over too good at home, but I still did it. What were their objections to that idea? Because you had been successful previously. Yeah, I think that my former wife, she wanted the security of working for the company. And when I saw the company that was acquiring us, I just knew it was going to be totally different because we were doing business with them and I just did not want any part of working with them. It was an easy decision for me. It was not as popular with her because, you know, she had also lived through the startup and living through the startup, as you know, is painful. Did you essentially go out and replicate the exact business that you had built before? Oh, to a T. I did the same exact thing except with that knowledge of the single advertiser magazine. And I also learned about systems. I learned way more about marketing than I had before. You're in this company for five years. Tell us uh, what the end result was at the end of that five years. The end result was I grew the company to north of $3 million in annual revenue. I had 40 full-time employees. I was able to exit the company about five years in, and I had a really nice seven-figure exit, actually. So what were your thoughts 
Tom, about this exit versus the first exit, because you, you had some objections to the way you exited the first time, you know, one being the partner, right? But the other being like, is my life actually going to change? Is this a meaningful amount of money? Well, at the time, I, of course, there was the money, but I was also going through a lot of personal problems. I had my dad had got sick and I was an only child and I really had to take care of my dad. And it was really stressful running that company because I could never find my number two person. I couldn't find a COO. I had some good people working for me, but nobody capable of actually running the company. So I couldn't, I heard you guys in a podcast talking about taking a vacation one, about from the company, but taking a vacation from the company was basically taking a day off for me. I just couldn't get away from it. The only way for me to solve my problem was to sell the company. Do you believe that that's true today? That the only way to solve the problem was to sell the company? In my situation, I think I had reached my peak. I couldn't have gone any further. And I did try twice to hire somebody to run the company. I guess I could have tried more, but every time I tried to step away or take a week off or whatever, I lost business. I just didn't know what else to do. You understand the Peter principle, or have you heard it before, where basically you can only reach whatever your potential is? I believe that. I think I had reached my, I had reached the max of what I could do alone anyways. Looking back though, at this time in your life, do you still believe that it's impossible for you personally to hire a number two to run a business that you own? Not today, but if you had asked me that question, even probably five years ago, I probably would have said yes, because I've changed my thought process quite a bit, but I would say I was kind of difficult to work for. In what way? What was it like working for Tom? If you didn't do it correctly, I was not going to train you. I was just going to push you out of the way and do the work. So I had this whole thing of the three reasons why something doesn't happen. You can't, you won't, you don't know how. And you just tell me what it is and we'll figure it out. And there was a lot of won'ts. And if there was a won't, I would make a change right there. So I was not an easy person to work for. What prompted you to become an easier person to work with? A real health situation of my own. While I was training for an Ironman, I got hurt. And it made me rethink a lot of things in life at that particular point in time. So what are some of those things that you rethought? I thought you can't sustain that lifestyle of going 100% at everything you do day after day, time after time. Like I, at the time I was training for an Ironman, you know, I was training 15, 20 hours a week for that. I was working 60 hours a week at my business. I was being dad, being grandpa, being a husband. And it was to the point where it was not sustainable. And my expectations along the way are hundred percent from everybody. And I just realized afterwards that I was the reason why I got hurt. And now I'm, I just tried to think about it so much differently. So this is all kind of happening at the same time, right? Like you feel like you can't find a number two. You have this health issue. You hadn't really come to terms, it seems like yet, with why you couldn't hire that number two. Like you just knew you couldn't hire someone else to perform at your level. I don't want to live a life of regret. And I don't want to think about regretting anything because when I sold my companies, they were all legitimate reasons why I sold them and they solved the problem for me. But certainly if I had my 50-year-old brain at 35, and I had a company making a 20% profit of $3 million, I would have figured it out. But I just didn't 
I wasn't in that mindset at that point. Yeah, it is interesting. I think a lot of people selling companies see it as a way out, you know, from whatever it might be, a way out from their management style, a way out from, you know, low profitability, a, a way out from a lot of things that are potentially we're able to fix, but in the moment we're not able to fix. I think you get so caught up in the company because running a company is really hard and being an entrepreneur is really hard and you and you are giving 100% of yourself to it. You need to figure out a way to balance that. And if you could balance it and still keep your company and have a life outside of the company, you can have a much better life for yourself as an entrepreneur. And I would say, you know, if you want to sell, sell, but if you can figure out a way to go a different way, it's not a bad idea because recreating yourself is hard. And so you sold the company again. And how many times did this happen? It's already happened twice. Yeah, I so I sold the free magazine distribution business three times, actually. Over a 20-year period, I sold it three times. And the third time being the final time, did you feel like the third time, we don't have to go into all the details, but did you feel like the third time you finally achieved the kind of results that you were looking to achieve in terms of yourself personally and in terms of monetarily as well? Personally, I felt like I had more to give, but I could no longer do it the way I wanted to do it. So I think that I made the exact right decision because also that that's tough business right now because there's less printed material. So I think that I made the right call at that time. In terms of the reasons why you've exited too, it seems like you've gone through them all. One being an industry degrading or collapsing, meaning print media kind of disappearing, partnership going down the drain, health issues. And when I'm listening to what you say, the reasons were these companies had to be sold. It's pretty much the standard scenarios. Now, your stories are unique in that you essentially built the same company three different times and sold the company for three different reasons. What do you think would be the outcome if you did it a fourth time? I think if I was ever to do it again, though, the first thing I would do is hire somebody to run it and to focus on my ability to get business, ability to sell, business develop. And I'd focus on that and let somebody else handle the operation. One thing that I really admire about your story, Tom, and I think that this is something that's extremely undervalued these days, is basically controlling your expertise and sticking with it. You know, In your case, you went with it for 20 plus years. And I think a lot of people these days get this like shiny object syndrome. I'm totally guilty of this, right? I built a skill set. I ran a business. I did it for seven years. And then I just said, eh, time to try something new, right? Whereas you built a business, you sold it multiple times, but you stuck with the expertise. And it seems like it compounds on itself. Do you have any regrets about staying in the same industry for so long? Well, there's two things there. One, if you're good at something, you need to maximize it. And you can't assume that you're going to be as good at something else. And I've seen that one play out on me personally as well. The thing about my business is it was really hard. And it wasn't scalable, as nicely scalable as some other businesses. Because when you're delivering magazines and you're in that world, there's only so many magazines you can put in a van at one time. There's only so many that you can put out to a display rack at one time. You have some limiters there. I would have picked a space that didn't have limiters that way. So I'll ask you again, are you happy being the guy that distributed and manufactured these publications for 20 years? And that's kind of your legacy at this point? Oh, yeah. If you were to look on my LinkedIn, there's so many people that gave me recommendations and were kind to me and nice to me. And I think that 
a lot of people were happy to do business with me over the years. And that's something to be really proud of as an entrepreneur. Anybody as an entrepreneur, if you get that from people, that is your win. That's your satisfaction more than the money. What did the uh, next 20 years look like for you? Right now, I'm kind of putting together a course or a bunch of material for people who are exiting businesses or want to exit a business, because I think that the stuff that's out there right now is just the reverse of what it should be. Everyone talks about balance sheets and all that type of stuff, and that's important, but there's another whole aspect to this of the transition. Should you sell? Why should you sell? Getting ready for the actual sale and then the right way to do it as opposed to just putting out there in an open market. Um, doing some sales consulting and kind of not really pushing the metal to the pedal right now. When you say the industry is backwards in terms of selling a business, what do you mean by that? I think you need to find your buyer. You need to identify the deal that you want based on your situation. So some people might want a cash out. Some people might want a long-term earnout. Some people might want different types of sales structures. And then you need to find the buyers that buy the businesses for the deal you need. And then you need to connect with those buyers, create a relationship with them, and then you need to be ready to sell to them, whether it's three years, three months, or a decade later. Business owners don't think that way. I spent some time doing some business brokerage, and they would just come to you in total disarray. They're not thinking about preparing for the sale, and preparing for the sale isn't a balance sheet. I mean, sure, you need clean records and all that, but you need to find out who's going to buy your business and then build your business around how they buy the business. And then selling it to them is very, very simple. We were in this situation when we sold our business. You know, we knew who the players were in the space. Unfortunately for us, we were bigger than all the other players. So that didn't leave us a bunch of options in terms of who could buy our business. I did approach one person that was probably big enough to buy our business. They signed an agreement, an NDA, and then eventually they ended up ripping off the products because I think that they saw some of the opportunity. Now, with your businesses, I think it's a little bit different because you have these distribution channels. Essentially, you have these relationships. Those are a lot harder to knock off than a physical product. So when you're talking about understanding who your potential buyers are, building relationships with them, are we speaking specifically about the services businesses or do you believe that this is possible in other industries? I think it's possible in other industries, but you know, I ran into the same things. It wasn't as black and white as that, but once you let people know that you're, you're up to be acquired, people called my customers. Some people tried to get my employees away from me, and that's very painful. It's a tough one. You need to really learn how to walk that tightrope. But if you have respect, if your buyer respects you, it changes the game, I think then you can potentially sell the business in a much different way. So if we're marketing our businesses as for sale, essentially to our competition, if we're opening these conversations early on in the business, do you feel like this kind of negates the need for a business broker or is there still a need in your situation? In my situation, I never used a business broker. I sold 12 companies, I guess, and I bought another eight or 10, and there was never a business broker involved in any of those deals. But I see why a business broker would be involved, and that's to create the transaction. You and Dan talk about it all the time, about the broker is on the side of the transaction, and at some point you need that. You need somebody who's going to push the transaction through. 
But the broker should not be the person who gives you the value of your business. They shouldn't be the person you're going to for advice. You're going to need somebody to do all the legal documentation for the deal and to keep the deal moving at some point because two business owners creating a deal sometimes can be difficult. I feel a lot like you do, Tom, in terms of like when we sold our business, it was very much my responsibility to sell the business. It wasn't the business broker's responsibility, but they did help to keep the conversations going. So it's really interesting to me that you were able to get that done by yourself 12 times. One thing I did learn and that I would stress to anyone is get a therapist, get a coach, (laughs) get a mentor, because your attorney is not your therapist. And let me tell you, they charge you for every second. (laughs) Then you call them like, oh my, I used to call my attorney all the time. Oh, what am I going to do? What should I do about this? And then when I got the bill, my eyes almost popped out of my head. So you just need to be super careful as to who your person's going to be, because who can you talk to about this deal? You can't talk to your employees. You need some people in place. You just need to make sure that the right people. What I'm hearing, though, is interesting to me, which is basically, again, you should be marketing your own business. You should be building in a way that it's sellable. You should be approaching people. And then you should involve professionals and not necessarily business brokers when you're ready to sell. And that may be like an attorney. Do you think that you have a formula or that this works for everyone? Or do you feel like there's some businesses and there's some personalities that must use a business broker to get these kinds of deals done? Well, I definitely think it depends on the size of your company. For a small Main Street company, it's a different world than it is if you have north of $5 million in revenue. So if you're north of $5 million, you're probably starting to talk about M&A. Getting a banker involved may make sense at some point. But you still should identify who your buyers at all times, even for a small company. There was one point when we were trying to sell our business that this guy, he explained to me that he had bought something like 26 businesses. I think I'd sold one small business at the time, right? But it was obvious to me at that moment where the power was in that relationship. It seems to me like that is some of the value of a business broker, right? Is that they get to see a hundred of these deals or participate in thousands of these deals, whatever it might be. Another thing you mentioned just briefly that you became a business broker. Explain to me how you did 12 deals without a broker and then you decided to become a broker at some point. It seemed like a natural progression for me to be a business broker. I had sold all these companies. I bought all these companies. I knew how to do it. And then what I found out is when I became a business broker that what they really cared about was the transaction. And I cared about the people who own the companies. And the valuations that they gave were inaccurate. Everything they did was to get somebody to list the business with them and then not actually service them. And then no matter what came back as an offer, they would say, oh, it's a good offer. And it was really disappointing to me to see that business on that side of it. And I was very glad that I never actually used a broker after being one for a while. And I just realized that ethically, it wasn't my world. Like I said, they have a place and you need them. But if you came to me and wanted to sell your business, I'd want to help you, not just sell your business. So did you try and change the incentive structure or did you just think like, this is totally screwed up the way that the power structures are and the incentives are and there's nothing to be done? I would say that it was totally screwed up. And the only way you made money is by selling businesses. There was no draw. There was no salary. You either sold a business and made money or you didn't. And it takes, as anybody who's been through it knows, six to 12 months to sell a company. So you can do the math real quick. 
even if you get a listing day one, you're fortunate to see your first paycheck in that six to nine month period. And by the way, only one in 10 sell that list. So you need 10 listings to sell one business. It is just a bad place if you need to make a living to be. So let's assume that I have a business and I haven't done all the things that you recommend, which is you know, networking, understanding who your competition are, building these relationships. And I'm at a point where I need to sell my business. Should I engage a broker at this point? Is that a good idea? Well, you might not have any choice in that scenario. If that were me and I was in that situation, I'd probably take six months to try and figure out the market. I would get a third-party valuation. I'd try to find out if there was other deals that were made in the market. And I'd start approaching those companies that bought other companies. But you know, oftentimes when you're a broker, what people do is they just come to you and I need to sell my business. You know, I have a health problem. I'm not making any money, whatever it is. Those are the people that they very rarely get an exit. So your go-to would be spend six months, do research, try and sell this thing on your own. If you can't, then maybe engage one. Right. I'm not even saying sell it on your own. I'm saying line it up and then hand it over to the broker once you're ready. Because you're going to need, if you've never sold a business before, trying to sell it on your own, you probably won't be successful because you're going to get at some point too emotional. I would just say if there was anyone who wants to sell their business, just like think about three things. Understand why you wanted to do it. You know, really dig into that why. And then understand what your situation is so that you can find the ideal buyer for your business. And the last thing is really understand that it's not over. Unless you're going to retire or you have so much money that you can do whatever you want, it's not over. So you really need to think about that transition period. What does your life look like after the sale? Do you have another business opportunity? What do you have? And those three things are going to make a difference for you if you're thinking about exiting your business. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure being on. Hey, oh, big thanks to Tom for uh, dropping by and sharing his experience. So, Ian, what was brought to the table for you? What did you take away from speaking with Tom? I thought Tom's story was fascinating. The fact that he's like started the same business over and over again. Some people, they might feel like in terms of personal development, it's not the best because they didn't get to explore all these different avenues in life and business. But for me, I think that starting and owning the same or similar type business over and over again or through your career, that's a great way to make a ton of money, staying within that competency. Now, there's not like necessarily a bunch of like innovation going on per se, but I think Sticking to what you know, sticking to what you're good at. Generally speaking, I see a lot of these people raking in the cash. If you have an idea in your mind, it's easy to like spot something that matches it. But I can imagine a lot of the wealthiest people that I know are the ones that just kept plugging at the same thing. A lot of times when people sell their business, they're in a position where it's like, always wanted to have a pizza shop. (laughs) It's a lot harder to get there with something new, you know? There's this other character in my mind, which is like the jumps around entrepreneur, you know, like, and then I was here for four years, we did this. And then I jumped into this company and I was this SVP of this. And then I was this. And it's like, I don't want to look at that person's bank accounts. Yeah. The fundamental pattern here is focused energy, lots of years of hard work 
and uh, doing a great job for your customers. That's the bottom line. The other thing that stuck out to me, Dan, is that I love hearing stories from entrepreneurs, the generation before that were into the businesses that I was like consuming. For example, like magazines, I was a huge consumer of magazines. Like that was my favorite thing to do at the grocery store was go to the magazine rack. And just the 1-900 phenomenon, like it's so funny to hear the stories of people that were involved in those types of businesses too. Because back in the day, you know, you were calling with your friends all huddled around the phone, or at least I was <laughs> listening to these 1-900 numbers. And then you get a little older and you realize these people that were profiting off of that. Again, huge thanks to Tom. We got links and show notes to everything mentioned in today's interview posted over at tropicalmba.com slash Tom Hannon. One other thing, look out for the Before the Exit audiobook coming down the pike, Ian. We just uh, have to get it approved by Audible now. Apparently, uh, not a super fast process. It's funny, like Amazon.com, you think that it's Amazon.com, so you like push a button and stuff shows up to your doorstep, and that's real. But for some reason, when you upload a book to them, I feel like they print it out and send it to a librarian somewhere, and they read through <laughs> the whole thing. I mean, the process is really slow, and I don't know if it's a different business unit or they want to give it like sort of the respect that a book deserves and give it a thorough review or whatever it is. The bottom line is I thought you would just hit click upload and you'd be an author. I thought that that's what 2018 was all about. (laughs) And our whole launch sequence was predicated on that assumption too. Uh Uh-huh. It really was. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't work out too well. It really was. So maybe in a few days, our paperback will be out and then uh, the audiobook shortly thereafter. We'd love to hear from you guys. And as always, thanks for listening to the TMBA pod. We'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning. 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.